Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of God, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So there we have Christ at his birth in this bridge period between Old and New Testament. Christ was brought to the temple to be circumcised, and circumcision was the Old Testament version of baptism. The sign of the covenant was put even on the Savior himself at eight days uh, of age. So that we have that uh, there. Uh, I'm going to read a verse from Acts chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 38. Acts 2, verse 38. The people of Israel cried to Peter, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So we have Christ being presented at eight days of age. And we have Peter, after Pentecost, preaching in Jerusalem and telling them they must be baptized. And these promises were not only for them, but also for their children. Lastly, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Where Paul went into Philippi as the church spread, and he went down on the Sabbath day to the riverside, and there were women praying together. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple, from the city of Thyatira to worship God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So there we have Christ bridging the Old to New Testament. We have the beginning of the church in Acts 2, the promises to the children. And in Acts 16 we see Paul preaching to a woman who was converted and born again. And what Paul did was he, he not only baptized her, but you'll notice her whole household was baptized by Paul. So let's turn to our passage now in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we see the culmination of Matthew's Gospel as Christ is given all authority in heaven and on earth and he gives his command to his church that they are to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So his command is to preach the gospel that disciples would be made and the way they enter the kingdom in this instance is through baptism. Now, as I said, and as most of you are aware, we are baptizing someone and today, a precious soul. We will administer the sacrament of baptism. And baptism is just that. It is a sacrament. Sacrament is just an old word and it, it had connotations of mystery in it. I'm sure you're aware that in the past there uh, it's still used in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the Latin form of the word sacramentum. And they attach all kinds of mysteries to all kinds of things. And they have many sacraments in the church. Uh, but that is not what we understand from the Bible. A sacrament is basically a, an action uh, that God's church takes that portrays something to the church about what God has done. In the Old Testament there were two there were many feasts and other things, but in the Old Testament there were two sacraments. Circumcision, which was for anyone coming into Israel, and for the children of those people and the Israelites. And the Passover, you had the circumcision for the children, and the Passover, which was to be taken every year as they went through their pilgrimage through this world, and passed into the Promised Land, which is heaven itself. In the New Testament age, these sacraments were carried through into our church by Christ and by the apostles, but their form just changed slightly. You have the circumcision in the old that becomes baptism. In the old, the cutting off of the flesh which spoke of sin and spoke of the fleshliness of man and spoke to the parents, especially the father, that he was not able to produce holy children that only God could do that, and that he was a flesh, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. The flesh just gives birth to more flesh. We have children, and they are like us, and they carry our sin nature. The flesh gives birth to more flesh. But the Spirit is the one who gives birth to the Spirit. He is the one who truly cleans and changes and saves. So you have the circumcision in the old and the Passover. In the new, we have baptism. The form is changed to the sprinkling or the pouring or dipping of water and we have the Lord's Supper. And you'll see how these mirror each other perfectly. You have one which is meant to symbolize an entrance into God's kingdom and it teaches us something about our sin and the way we must enter. And then you have the, the meal that is given to the believer, the Passover or the Lord's Supper, which is taken frequently and is meant to sustain us as we live in this world and give us the hope of the kingdom and peace of God to come in heaven. Circumcision and the Passover, 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. And a sacrament is designed to be a sign and a seal. That's what it's for. It's meant to signify something and say something, and it's meant to seal something upon us. Like in the old world when they would seal buildings or letters, a king would seal a letter, and when you received it, you knew this is the name and the stamp of the king upon it. It belongs to him and it should be taken seriously. And you opened the seal and looked inside to see what the promises or the expectations of the king was towards you. That's exactly why we still have them. These aren't just rituals we're doing today. We're not doing them because they're nice or interesting. We're doing them because God has commanded them and they have spiritual significance for Ben and Maria and for Joanna. These things have real living significance. We're not indulging in ceremonies here at all. These things have been given by God for a purpose for our families. And all sacraments that I mentioned there are a sign of something and they are a seal of something. They work that way in the Old Testament and it does in the New. I mentioned the circumcision and Passover. They both signify something. The circumcision brings out a picture, communicates a picture, a sign. It portrays something for us that words won't always work in portraying. It's a picture form of the Word of God. And it says to us, unclean, that the flesh must be cut off, that we are, we are born unclean, and that something needs to happen to us. It's the same with the New Testament. Baptism is a sign and a seal. It pictures something for us as we will do it this morning, and it seals something, it promises something to the family. So it's not just an interesting illustration, but it's an act of worship that Christ has instituted that means that when we do it, it carries something real with it, and expectation for the family and for the child. So, these sacraments preach, these sacraments speak, and we should prepare ourselves as we look into God's Word, and as we approach this baptism, we should expect to be spoken to. Obviously, Joanna will not understand today what is happening, but the parents will, and all of us looking on will. We usually exposit the scriptures and preach, and they will say something to us, but this sacrament says something to And before I give a few brief points, and then we move to the baptism itself, I just want to say something about baptism, in that it, it is for the children of believers also. I mentioned these sacraments, and the circumcision was to be placed on someone entering Israel, and the Passover then was to be eaten frequently throughout life. It's the same for us. Baptism is for entrance into the kingdom of God. And then the Lord's Supper is to sustain us. So you will all know that um, if someone is saved here today, if someone is born again during the service, if someone is brought to God and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the appropriate thing to do soon would be to baptize them. Baptism is for adults, it is for conversion, and it is placed on the person to teach them that your sins have been washed 
you have been cleaned, and now you are inside the kingdom of God. So it's for entrance, and then for the next few months and years, then they are offered the Lord's Supper to sustain them throughout their life until they die. So there's no doubt, we have no argument about that, but it is for those who have been saved by God. And to enter the kingdom, an adult should be baptized. However, we also ought to baptize our children. And that is clear uh, from the scriptures. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, that Peter says these promises are not only for those who have been saved, but it was for their children also. Lydia was saved, and Paul, though he was a New Testament apostle, and building the New Testament church, he baptized the whole household. As a symbol, not only that Lydia had been saved, but now her family, her children, were in a different relationship to God than they had been before. Later on in that chapter, Paul is actually in prison, and he is trapped in that prison, and he's going to be judged for preaching the gospel, and the, the jailer in the prison becomes converted. There is a great earthquake. He thinks the prisoners have escaped, and he's about to kill himself. He's about to thrust the sword into himself, thinking he had lost the prisoners. But wonderfully, Paul speaks graciously to him, and he preaches the gospel to him. And the Philippian jailer asks one of the most famous questions in Scripture, What must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to repent and be baptized. And he baptizes the jailer. He goes to his house, and he baptizes again the whole household. These are New Testament examples of households being baptized. And we, we are not surprised about that. Because the, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper is, these are sacraments of the covenant of grace, which isn't new. The covenant of grace began in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve's children were in the covenant of grace. And then Abraham and his children were in the covenant of grace. God's great plan of salvation, in which he comes to man in his lostness, and offers him a way of salvation, offers him a saviour, and offers his family salvation. And we see that when God came to Abraham to fully install that covenant of grace and gave him promises, he said to Abraham, these promises are for you, and I will greatly multiply you, but they're for your children also. So we have to remember that, that in the word of God, it is common, it is expected and even commanded, that from Abraham onwards, when someone is saved and when someone enters the kingdom of God, there is an expectation that their children and their family come with them and that the church treats the family as being inside the kingdom and places the sign on them. So we have these sacraments, we have a sign and a seal that is put on the person and although adults are baptized when they come into the kingdom, it's clear from Scripture, Old and New Testament, that the children are to be circumcised and that the children are to be baptized in the New Testament. Let me say a few things about what this all means. What this all means. For Jesus fully institutes a New Testament baptism at the close of his ministry here, immediately before he ascends, and he tells us and commands us to baptize 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want to say a couple of brief things about what baptism means and what the name means and what these three persons, how they are connected to this. So baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. What does baptism mean? Well, we don't have to spend much time on saying technically what it means. It's clear what it does. We pour water on things because we want to wash them and clean them. And that's exactly what it is. The word baptism in the New Testament just means to wash or to dip or to sprinkle water on something. And that is why the Lord replaced circumcision with this. For in completing his ministry and in the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church, we no longer have to do as something so difficult as circumcision. But the blessings and grace of the new covenant mean that we use this beautiful symbol of cleaning, that someone is unclean, and that the water is placed upon them to symbolize that cleansing. And we all need to accept that and deal with it even this morning. That God's word to us is that all of us are unclean. That is the thing that defines man. That is the thing that describes man and woman since the fall. And not only does God say it clearly and remonstrate with us and plead with us and be gentle with us to tell us this fact, but we know it ourselves, our conscience testifies that it is so. And any realistic view of the world around us as we observe it shows us that man is not right. There is something wrong with man. Not only in the way he lives, but the fact that he dies. And we know it's unnatural. And we don't like it, and we want to avoid that fact. But we know there's something wrong. That God has left some grace in the world. Some goodness, some beauty, some life. And it's his prerogative to do that, because he is gracious. But it should never blind us to the fact that there is something seriously wrong. And it is that we are unclean. That we are, as David said in the psalm there, we are born in sin. My mother conceived me in sin, David says. And I was brought forth in iniquity. And the heart of man and the soul of man, however we might want to dress it up and portray it as good, as though we are good, the truth is that the heart of man is ugly. That we have what I might call a, a disease, a, a moral disease. And we are, it shows us our sinful nature that we are, we find it very straightforward to identify and see disease around us and in other people. And we're very willing to treat it. If any of us were, were, were given that diagnosis or any of our children, we would go very quickly and have it dealt with. We, we very quickly accept that, it, that these things happen physically. But the worst thing is, even worse than that, is that it's true of the soul anyway. And yet, we seem blind to it. And that's the awful thing about sin, that, that it does blind us to ourselves. Though we all know, and whether we're in Christ or not, whether we're believers or not this morning, 
the truth is we all know that there's something wrong with us. And the, the awful thing about sin is that even when we see the facts, even when we see how we behave, and how we think, and how others think and behave, and though we see in the world around us all kinds of disorder and wrong and evil, sin blinds us and we, we want to call it something else, we want to make an excuse for it, we want to find another explanation for, for it, that it's evolution or these kinds of things, that this is just the way the world is. But we know deep down that we are not animals, that we are to behave in a certain way, and we know that there's right and wrong, and the law of God is written on our hearts, and we know the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of ourselves, and we know that there is something wrong. The Old Testament gives us a picture as God speaks to Israel in Ezekiel 36, and says to them that you are unclean, and I must take out your heart, a heart of stone, and give you a, a true, living, clean heart. And I will sprinkle clean water on you from all the filth of your mind and heart. And we see it throughout the scriptures. We see it throughout the scriptures. That city in general in the Old Testament called Naaman, who was given leprosy by God. And leprosy is the clearest picture in the Bible of sin. And he was given that, and it would kill him, it would cut him off from everyone else, it would destroy his life. And this was a big man. This was a successful man. He led an entire army of the most powerful nation in the world at the time he was given leprosy. And God said to him, and offered him cleansing, and he had to go and dip in the Jordan so that his flesh would be restored, and that his flesh would be like that of a newborn babe. There is a picture of what we're talking about today. That sin is that leprosy. And we all have it. Sitting here and me standing here. We all have that leprosy. Even when we come to Christ. And he saves us and transforms our soul in a great miraculous way. I hope if you're looking at Christians and you think that they're full of themselves and that they think that they're holier than you and that they think that they're clean and that they're right. Not at all. A Christian still has the disease. The Christian is being treated for the disease. The IV is in the arm and the antibiotics are working in the Christian but the Christian still has the disease. We are all we all have to fall down and deal with the reality that we are created in the image of God and that we are sinning against Him constantly and against each other. I hope we can agree on that, friends, that there is something wrong with us. Baptism is a picture of how God deals with this disease. Even um, how the Holy Spirit comes to deal with that disease. To give new birth to the soul, as we read, that Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and he didn't understand what it meant, and Jesus said to him, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's telling Nicodemus that his heart must be washed. Nicodemus was a great theologian. He was a great Jewish minister. Everyone in Israel knew who Nicodemus was. 
He was one of the most famous men in the church. And he led the other ministers. And Jesus has the audacity to tell him, you're not safe. You're not clean. And he says, but I'm an Israelite. And I serve God. And I pray several times a day. I tithe. I do all of these things. And I'm not like the, the prostitutes and the lepers that you see walking around Jerusalem. I don't understand. And Jesus says, your heart needs washed. You know the Old Testament back to front. You teach others. There's all these things. But there is ever a place in Scripture that shows us how much we need to be clean. There it is. If Nicodemus needed to be clean, man, we all need to be clean. And the baptism shows us that the Holy Spirit does this. That he washes the heart when he comes in like water. And he goes into the soul and unites himself to the soul of a fallen person. And he begins to work in a renewing, enlivening, and cleansing way. And he sets that person apart and begins that work of restoration. They're, they're detached from the world around them then. And there is a work going on in them that is miraculous and that is being operated on from heaven itself. Unless he was born of water and the Spirit, he cannot live and see the kingdom of God and heaven itself. And unless I am born of water and the Spirit, and you are born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit cleansing you and coming into your life in conversion and regeneration, you cannot live, you cannot go through death, and you cannot see the kingdom of God. So, baptism symbolizes this washing, this cleansing, this deep moral, spiritual cleansing that we all need. And by faith, and by believing and submitting to Christ, he will send and pour out the Holy Spirit. He's doing it anyway. Every Christian in the world today that's truly born again, the whole, that Christ is pouring out the Holy Spirit into their souls. And even today, around the world, there will have been people who have been converted under the preaching of the gospel. And Christ, in his authority that's given to him in heaven and earth, is sending the Spirit into their souls and saving them and cleansing them. And they feel their dirt and their filth. And they've been seen, they've been shown themselves. And they have submitted to Christ in, in their fear, in their guilt, in their conscience, and many of them with lives that have fallen apart and the Holy Spirit has come to them and made them a child of God. And that is what can be done for you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel dirty, if you feel any sense of that uncleanness, if it bothers you and you feel trapped by it and you know your conscience tells you that this is so, believe in Christ. Come to Christ, and you shall be clean. He said to that leper, What do you want me to do for you? And the leper said, Lord, that I would be clean. And Christ said, I am willing. Be clean and go from me. That can be yours this morning. It's a washing. It's also, secondly, a mark of the blood of Christ. We think of baptism only as the water, and that it washes the believer, that it washes the converted person and makes them clean, and that it's only a symbol of the Holy Spirit washing the heart. 
But we know from Scripture that it's also a symbol for the blood of Christ. If, if you can turn to it quickly, if you're able, um, we can just uh, quickly see this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter writes, An apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These are just places in Asia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the cleansing, and for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. There is an example of something being sprinkled to clean someone. But it's not water there, it's the blood of Christ himself. Move forward just uh, a couple of pages to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. And it's not only a picture of the Spirit cleaning us. It's a picture of the blood of Christ, which strangely in the scripture is a cleansing thing. We don't think of blood that way. Um, but it's clear in scripture. They appear in the book of Revelation as those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It, it's a strange picture for us. We only wash with water. We would never wash something with blood. But it's not talking about physical washing. It's talking about a guilt washing. It's not physical dirt that's on the heart, but it's, it's legal guilt. It's the breaking of God's law. That's the gospel. That, that is the gospel of Christ. That there is guilt, legal guilt, on the man or woman. And that the only thing that can deal with it, and put a righteousness there, an innocence, and take away the guilt and put it somewhere else, the only thing that can do that is the blood of Christ. And that what I described to you there is exactly what Christ did on the cross. And the New Testament authors say, if you want to come into the kingdom, you need the Holy Spirit and to be washed and sanctified and changed. But that can only happen if you have first been baptized or marked or sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing that the blood of the Son of God, the blood of someone who lived perfectly and righteously and who perfectly fulfills the law and perfectly pleases God the Father in all his glory and righteousness. The Father, whenever he looks at Jesus Christ, his Son, he looks at him, a man, and says, this man is exactly like me, and I am pleased with him. And Jesus says, well, you are not pleased with all of them in their millions, but I will sprinkle them. I will sprinkle the blood on them, like they did in, in the Passover. The Israelites were, you remember that, they were to sprinkle their doors with the blood. They were to baptize the doors with blood. So that when God looked at the doors, he passed over those families. And they were safe, like covenant families here 
in a certain sense, we can say are safe in a certain sense. That he passed over, he killed the Egyptians, but he passed over the ones that had the blood sprinkled on them. This baptism for Joanna is a symbol and a picture of the need for every man and woman to be washed by the Spirit and to be given a new heart, but also to have the blood of Christ sprinkled upon them so that their sins can be justly dealt with. It's also a picture, thirdly, of being grafted into Christ. Washing, blood placed upon them, and that puts them into the covenant with Christ. I'm not going to read another passage, um, because we've turned to several already, but Paul says in Romans that when we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. We are in Christ. That we died with Christ. That we were raised with Christ. And that we live in Christ. How often Paul says, in Christ. The Christians here know that. Those who are in Christ, he says, are a new creation. We were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. We receive forgiveness of sins in his blood. There's that word in all of the time. And it's because baptism engrafts the person into Christ himself and unites the person to Christ. Now, the baptism itself, and I'm speaking about an adult here when they're saved, the baptism isn't the thing that, it's not the water that engrafts them into Christ. That's wrong. It's a picture of something that's going on on the inside. Can you see that? They're, they need their heart washed, they need their sins atoned for, and then as Christ does that, he brings them to him, and they become one. They are in each other. We, if we are born again, are in Christ, and he is in us. We are united. What a, an amazing thing and a truth, and we can't go into that fully right now, because that's an entirely different message and sermon, and maybe even a series. But for the Christians to be told that when Christ died, we died with him. We received that penalty of his dealt with. When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And when he was raised from the dead, he brought us all with him. He, he raised us to spiritual life. That's how much he wants to be united to those whom he has mercy on and he has pity on. He doesn't keep them far away from himself. He basically says, what happens to me happens to you. We are one body. He is the head. We are the arms, the legs, and the body. And what happens to Christ happens to his true church. So I never need to worry, in a sense, about being condemned for sin. Because it was dealt with at the cross. I don't have to worry about death. Because I was raised with Christ. And I don't have to worry about what happens after that. Because he ascended and he is in glory. Therefore, the believer will ascend and go into glory. Baptism, friends, is a picture, a sign of all of that. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed by his blood. And you are now one with him. That's what it is a picture of. Those three things are what baptism means. Those three brief things. 
When Jesus says in, in, in his words here, baptize them, that is why he tells us to do this. He wants us to preach and to portray these things. You'll notice he says, baptize them into the name, or unto in the Greek, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants us to think about washing. He wants us to think about atonement and forgiveness. He wants us to think about being in him. That is why he says baptize. Why does he say name? Baptize them in the name. Well, this is, is where we will understand why we are baptizing Joanna and we're not going to baptize her when she's 18. We are to baptize this child into the name of Christ or into the name of God because she now belongs to the kingdom of God. She belongs to the visible church of Christ, the true church, wherever the true gospel is preached and practiced and where God's word is followed, that is the visible church of Christ. And the church is there with its believers in it and with many people in it. And when two believers have a child, that child belongs on the inside, not the outside. We don't know if Joanna is saved. We don't know. Most children are not saved at that age because we see sin manifest itself so powerfully in the teens and the twenties and then it hardens into atheism opposition and intellectual opposition in the thirties and forties. We, we know that children are not just saved, but it, it's not, it's not wrong to consider it. It's not theologically wrong. John the Baptist was regenerated in the womb. When Mary went pregnant to visit Elizabeth, John the Baptist left in the womb. And this wasn't a baby kicking. It would never have been recorded if all babies kicked. That's not what happened in Elizabeth's womb. There was something spiritual that happened there. And John the Baptist reacted to Jesus being present near him. And that is a sign there that the whole, his father was told, he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. We don't know where Joanna is in that sense at all. And it is, um, it's wrong and even unhealthy in, in, in one way to begin to think about that too much. But the point is, this child was on the inside, not the outside. And that's the way God views her. Baptize her in the name. Not just the adult believer, but the children. Baptize them into the name of Jehovah. And put my name on her. Put my name uh, there. That shows an ownership that God has of the child. And he puts his name on things in the scripture because they belong to him. He put his name on things in the temple. He puts his name on people. He puts his name on Israel. He's put his name on the church. This is not the church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It carries his name. And the Lord commands that we baptize into the name to show clearly that this person belongs to the visible church. Baptize into the name of God or baptize into the name of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. These are not different things. All three persons are God. 
And they all have the same name, Jehovah. The Father is Jehovah. The Son is Jehovah. The Spirit is Jehovah. Three persons equal in glory, majesty, and in power. And we are to baptize into that name, the name of the covenant God, so that this covenant now is operating in the child's life. Let me say something before leaving that about practically what that means. We baptize, I'm sure the order is in an invisible church, as well as a visible one. The invisible church is the true body of elect believers from all eternity that are truly born again, and that have been saved from all eternity and chosen in Christ. It's invisible, we can't mark its borders. We don't always know who's saved and who's not. That's the invisible church, and the church triumphant in heaven at the moment. We are here this morning in the visible uh, church, the visible kingdom, and um, not everyone in the visible church is saved. I hope we all know that. And not every adult who's baptized is saved. The baptism will be no use to them when they stand before the throne of God. And not every child that is baptized is saved. But this is what it means for the family. That as we know and are assured of that Ben and Maria loved the Lord because it's evident in their lives that their child belongs to God. And this child now has things in this kingdom that other children don't have. And we feel for these children and we pity these children. But we're thankful to God for this child. This child has the word of God. This child has praying parents. This child will have family worship. This child will attend the means of grace regularly. This child has the name of God stamped upon them. And God says to this child, you belong in a special way to me. You're set apart. I'm not going to treat you like I treat the rest of the world. What a blessing that is, brothers and sisters, to know that for your child. That they, and I hope you can see this, that the things I've just described, the blessings and privileges of the covenant are given to our children in a way that they're stolen from and hidden from other children. And what a blessing for this child that God doesn't just say, I put my name on you, but it's given this child to parents and all of these blessings so that as Joanna grows and begins to be aware and begins to be receptive and can learn that all of these things will be around her and God will expect of her that she accept these things. <coughs> That's why we baptize our children. Other children don't have that. But these things are placed around this child and God expects the child to accept them. The baptism wouldn't save her. The water wouldn't save her. God must save her. But he's going to put around this child everything she needs to be saved. That is the blessing of the covenant which is given. And as the word is heard, and as the example is set, and as she is prayed for, 
And as the Lord is present in her life, and she begins to learn that she was baptized, she must respond positively to that. And not resist it, and despise it like Esau did, or Ishmael, but to accept it like Isaac did, and like Jacob did, and to value it, and treasure it, and hold on to it, and to embrace Christ as her Saviour. Baptism is a washing. It symbolizes the blood of forgiveness. It symbolizes an engrafting into Christ that we all need in our lives. And it's into the name of God, which puts his ownership upon them and sets them apart and puts them in the church of Christ to surround them with things that will be useful and beneficial to their salvation. And the promise to the parents, it's a sign, a sign that teaches all that, but a promise, a seal. The promise for the parents is that if they are faithful in raising the child, and if the child responds properly, the child will be saved with these powerful things around them. I feel I need to say one sentence before I leave that point because of the conscience of other parents here. If your children are saved um, and you have done all these things faithfully, it's not your fault. It's not your fault if your children aren't saved. Don't let yourself off with that um, without thinking about it. But if you are burdened for your son or daughter and you did everything you could and you plead with them, it's not because you did it wrong that they're not saved. It's because sin is powerful and none of us should be saved. If God had not overpowered any of us, all of us would resist these things. We don't like them. We don't want them. We are enemies of God. We don't want any of these things. And there is all that complication in your heart because you're seeing the one you love who yet, as yet, has not been fully touched by these things and submitted to them. I know the same thing in my own family. You know it in your family. God alone saves. So we have all of these things. Washing, blood, engrafting. I'm baptized into a name that they're surrounded by these things. Before we baptize uh, Joanna, I want to say one third last thing as an instruction to the couple. Because Jesus says, baptize is what it is. Into this name to own the child and set them apart, but it's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can't leave this without saying something about each person. Let's do it in reverse. Holy Spirit, Son, and then the head of the Trinity, the Father himself, the Holy Spirit. Brother and sister, teach this daughter of yours her need of the Holy Spirit. Her need to be clean. Teach her teach her that she is sinful. There are many gifts to give to a child, and we are very worldly in the way that we look at our children, and the way that we want to promote them and affirm them and all these things, which each have their place. But I can tell you with the authority of the Word of God, the greatest gift you can give to your child is to make them aware that they're a sinner, and they need to be right with God. This is, that's eternal. That's heaven, and it's hell. Teach them it lovingly, gently, but don't compromise. Don't let your natural heart compromise that you dampen 
or numb the message of God, or blunt the blade of Scripture. Tell the child, this is what we are, and tell them their, tell the, the child her need to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be clean, and to be filled with spiritual life, and to follow the Lord all the days of her life. Teach her Psalm 51. Sing it to her, read it to her, make sure she knows Psalm 51 that she is baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, that she needs the Holy Spirit, and that she is holy. She is sacred. She can't behave like worldly children. She belongs to God, and she is set apart because the Holy Spirit has, has been stamped upon her. The Son, the name of the Son, teach her that she needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach her that she needs to be in Christ. That he alone can forgive sin. That he died on the cross for sinners. And that she must deal with the cross. We must all pass that road by the cross. And we must make our choice. Teach her the grace of the Lord. As he opens his hands to her. And says he will accept her. Teach her that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. That he is a friend that sticks closer than family that he is the Lord of grace, that he is the greatest lover in the world, that this is the beloved of God who loves perfectly. And teach her, before you tell her that she needs a husband, teach her that she needs this husband first. And then the father. Teach Joanna that there is a gracious, loving, perfect father of all eternity and who fills all things. Who loves his son and loves his spirit and who sent both into the world to save fallen creatures. He sent his begotten son into the world with his blood. Then he sent his Holy Spirit into the world with his water to save you and I. And this is the Father who is love. For God is love. And there are many loves today described through the, the reassignment of gender movement and the sexual revolution that we're going through and there's lots of talk about love but these are deformed loves they are broken, dying, diseased loves that is nothing like the love of this father trust that love because he's loved Christ perfectly from all eternity he never began loving him and he loves him perfectly why would I not want that love for myself? We all want to be loved. And we love each other imperfectly. And husbands and wives love each other imperfectly. Why would I not want that love that lasts forever? Teach this daughter that although she has two parents, she needs this parent. She needs one day to cry, Abba, Father. She needs to say, My Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. She must be adopted. It's wonderful that you have these children. But remember, she doesn't really belong to you. She has to be adopted. The name of God will be upon her. And she must come to know this wonderful father of love, grace and salvation. Hell is a terrible thing. And we don't like hearing about it. It's awful. But the Father's house, 
the house of glory and love, where there is perfect love and perfect family and perfect holiness, where relationships burst at the point of, of death when we are translated into the presence of Christ and we are his children, our relationships burst or banks and we experience relationships in a way there that we never dreamed of here. This is why we were created to know these three persons. Bless your families. Thank God for your families. But these are temporary. We were created for this family. Father, Son, and Spirit. Let this child know. Give her the greatest gift of all. To teach her that she needs the Spirit. That she needs Christ. That she must come to know her Heavenly Father. Who made her bones in the womb. Who gave her her mind and her beauty. Who gave her and breathed her soul into her. He is her Father. And quickly introduced her to that Father. And I don't need to say anything else. For me or for you, as we listen to that, it applies to us all, doesn't it? We must tell our children these things. May God help us to do that and may He bless the truths of this cleansing, setting apart baptism that introduces us to the God of salvation. Amen. And may the Lord bless His Word to our souls. Let's remain seated and we'll pray. And then we'll sing Psalm 24. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give you thanks for these truths and help us to take with us what we heard today and to take the parts of it that that are needed the most for our lives. These things are beyond us all and how wonderful each of them is. Oh, to be clean and to have peace in our souls and minds and to be right and to know that we will live Oh, how wonderful to know Jesus Christ and his blood and that it's available to us now by faith that we will yield to him. How wonderful that we have the name of God stamped upon us, that that means he will protect us and provide for us and own us as our true heavenly parent. And how wonderful to come to know Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh God. Make us truly thankful for these things and save all of our children as we have baptized them. May the truth behind that baptism work in their souls and may we all come to know the Lord Christ while we have time. For the days are evil, our days are short, and we do not know what a day will bring. We do not know how long our life will be. Help us even this day to come to the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.